Welcome to this episode of Professors, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discuss the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and my favorite thing about Texas, that's what I'm supposed to say? Favorite Texas-specific thing? Tex-Mex. Ooh, food. Yeah. I once tried to order Mexican food in New York State. I do not recommend. Don't yeah, do that. Yeah, even if it's authentic Mexican food, it's different than Tex-Mex. I'm not going to say better or worse, but it's, it's different. different. Yeah. And my name is Misty, and my favorite Texas-specific thing is Bluebell ice cream. That's good. They do have it in other places. I know, but it's made here. It is. And it's better than Lone Star beer, so. <laughs> um, also, Bucky's, the gas station. And Dr. Pepper. I don't drink Dr. Pepper, but I don't. other people seem to like it. You like Bucky's, though? I like Bucky's. They have the best bathrooms. They're I'm always very, clean. I'm very confused by people who have a huge loyalty to a gas station. It's always clean bathrooms. You can't beat that on a road trip. That's fine. But why do people have T-shirts for the place with clean bathrooms? Uh, that I don't understand. Okay. I mean, it's my favorite place to stop on a road trip to Houston or Austin. Sure. I know they'll have food and bathrooms, but... I'm not going to get a t-shirt for my favorite <laughs> gas station with a little beaver on it. It's just, it's not going to happen for me. So today we're not talking about gas station bathrooms. Anymore. That was it. <laughs> that, that's that's ended. So we are talking about Texas women. Unstoppable Texas women. Not just any old Texas women. So not us. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty stoppable. <laughs> <laughs> the slightest barrier we're going to give up. We're done. But we're going to talk about some unstoppable Texas women. And today, I guess we're focused on politics, history type people. Yes. I don't know. Yes. How you've divided them. All right. So today is our first of two talking about unstoppable Texas women in history. Yay, history. Yeah. We and got, politics. We got two on history and politics. Because we couldn't fit it all into one. And then you made me move everyone else into a third. Well, because I was trying to group like things together. That's fine. I'm good with categorization. Two on history and politics. There's just too many cool women in Texas. There's just too I many. I agree. But two on history and politics and one on everything else. Not history and politics. <laughs> Everything else. Yes. Goes in the other yes. category. And those are evenly weighted to you. Yeah. Well, no. But okay. this is the more important of the two. <laughs> but that's why you're here, to balance me out. I feel like it's fair. I know that you first, of course, want to start us with history. Yay, history. <sighs> okay. Well, I did put things in non-chronological order. Which just is going to break my brain. To entertain myself. So we're going to start with... The mother of Texas. Well, we're going to start with history, but that's okay. We'll oh. start with the mother, the mother of Texas. <laughs> I just said that because you have in the notes in all caps, not the mother of Texas. So, so I decided to say that she was. <laughs> so I don't know if other states do this. But Probably not. we are required to take Texas history twice in our formative years. And Texas government. Yes. Which is necessary because our government's weird so we but other states don't require college students to take oh i'm not even talking specific... about college i'm talking about when we're like in fourth and seventh grade yes we do have some states do have okay. texas or have state other states have <laughs> texas history <laughs> oh man it's it's true what they say about us some states do require state history courses and some do not i think most of the original 13 colonies for instance probably do probably do California, states like that. But I mean, if you're not a remarkable state, I think that you know about it and you don't make people. We learn also about it. start our school days off with the Pledge of Allegiance. We do. Do they not do that everywhere? Well, I think they started with the National Pledge of Allegiance everywhere, but we also do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the State Pledge of Allegiance. I forgot about that. We do. We do the national and the state. So in my courses, we talk a lot about this thing called Texas exceptionalism, how we just think that we're better than everybody else. Yes. And that's a real thing. It exists. Yes. yes. And one of the things that we used to teach a long time ago was about the mother of Texas. And this falls under that Texas exceptionalism. Like we have a person we can point to as the mother of Texas. Well, we have a father of Texas. Yes. But he actually did something. Stephen F. Austin? Yes. Yeah. So Jane Long has for a long time been considered the mother of Texas. 
Please do not call her that. I won't because I don't even know who she is. She was married to a guy named James Long, who tried to lead a rebellion in Texas before the revolution to make Texas its own independent country. So she's here in Texas with her husband. Okay. She had a baby. Okay. And that just made her the mother of Texas. I don't get it. Because she was the first white Anglo-American to have a baby in Texas, she was the mother of Texas. That's literally all she did. She's not the it's first worth asking. woman to have a baby in Texas. Obviously. Because <laughs> I mean, obviously. Native Americans. She's not even the first European woman to give birth in Texas because we had Spanish settlers, colonizers here. Yeah, but the I mean... She's literally just only the first American woman. And that made her the mother of Texas. And by the way, she left Texas after that. So she's a reverse carpetbagger? <laughs> I don't know what you call that person. A Yankee. Her husband died in his rebellion. So it makes sense that she left... Sure. And she had a young child to care for. She probably needed to leave. Do we need a mother of Texas? You know, if there was a woman who helped in the revolution in a significant way, or if there was a woman who founded a colony, sure, mother of Texas. That's why Stephen F. Austin's the father of Texas. He founded one of the first colonies. I know. I went to a college named after him. I know all about him. But I did not go to Stephen F. Austin State University, though. I went to a different (laughs) college named after him. But do other states have mothers? Is there a mother of Oklahoma? Not that I'm aware of. Is there a mother of Indiana? I'm sure if there is, one of our listeners will let us know. I don't. Because we don't take other states' history very seriously here. We really don't. I don't know where they are or what they... It, there's. <laughs> yeah, you've seen the like the Texans map of the United States. Yeah. And, like Texas is super huge. And then All the other states like are very tiny. Everything else. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know where other states are. Just the surrounding ones. I, I know that in geography class that we had to learn where the hill country was and where Bear County was. <laughs> but I do not remember learning anything about the Great Lakes. Or Kansas. <laughs> and I still don't believe that there are states north of New York. So I'm not good at geography. And if you don't believe me, you can ask the people who do trivia with me on the weekends. I know nothing. So I just wanted to start with Jane Long so that we all know she is not the mother of Texas. And if you ever hear that, please correct people. She did nothing of importance. No one but you travels in circles where this comes up in conversation. That's probably true. Let's talk about Ma Ferguson, though, because she is so not the mother of Texas either, but she's... She, she is did our do first something. female Texas governor. That's very cool. So inaugurated 15 days after a woman in Wyoming... Yes. We have the second female governor in the country. Which is pretty impressive. In 1925. But. It sounds like we have started but a great trend that okay. probably continued. No, no, not at all. But <laughs> the reason that we uh, voted for Ma Ferguson, her slogan was, two governors for the price of one. Her husband. No, I'm out. Her husband, Pa Ferguson. <laughs> It's Ma and Pa. Shut up. Yeah. James Ferguson, Pa Ferguson, <laughs> had previously been impeached. He was governor and he'd been impeached. <laughs> God, this is awful. So he can't run again. But after 1920, women can vote and hold office. So his wife can. Are you joking? No, I'm not. Is that a joke? No. No, that's how she became governor. She ran and said, basically, I promise to let my husband really be governor. I won't do a whole lot. That's- how do you feel about that? <laughs> Supportive, not supportive, middle of the road. That's the stupidest thing ever. So I've always known that Ma Ferguson was the first female governor of Texas. We do like to celebrate that because like we were number two. And that we had a female governor like in the 20s. Super early, yeah. That's all I really knew. I knew that she went by Ma Ferguson. I thought, cool. I didn't know that the we just elected her so her husband could be the governor again after being impeached. So aside from that issue, she wasn't very good at being governor. <laughs> you don't say after all of these <laughs> qualifications. So there is a scandal involving pardons and paroles. You know, the governor can pardon and parole people. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that mom, pa might have been taking cash and then pardoning certain people. So during her time as governor, we actually had an increase in crime. (laughs) 
because we were letting convicts out of prison. What a governor. And they were offering government contracts to people that would give them kickbacks. So just like scandalous kind of all the way around. But I want to tell you another story about Ma Ferguson. That, in 2020, that doesn't sound very scandalous anymore. <laughs> it should be scandalous. Let's say that. It I don't disagree. Scandalous. I don't disagree. There's a story that's often told about Ma Ferguson, which we cannot verify. It's probably not true. But I want to tell it to you because it really gives a flavor for who she was as a person. So there's been a debate in Texas for a really long time if we should teach bilingual education. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense in Texas because we do have a high Spanish-speaking population. We've always had a Spanish-speaking population. Yeah. And a lot of people who don't speak Spanish want to learn. Yes, exactly. So should we have this or should we not? Apparently, Ma said to somebody, well, if the king's English is good enough for Jesus... It's good enough for the children of Texas. I'm going to be honest with you. It sounds like something a woman from Texas would say. It sh- it probably didn't happen. <laughs> but it's a perfect story for Ma Ferguson because it's the kind of thing she would say. If the king's English... Because her Bible's in English. Right. Was good enough for Jesus. Yes. I wasn't aware Jesus spoke English. Well, then why would her Bible be in English, Allegra? That's a good point. <laughs> I've been refuted. <laughs> so she wasn't considered a deep intellectual... She's not really considered a reformer or even a very good governor, but we did have a female governor super early. Sort of. So go Texas. Okay. Yay. I want to talk about some other super early people and I'm going to do them out of chronological order. Are you going to talk about people who actually made a difference? Yes. Do you know about Emma Tanayuka? I know a little bit about her, but I could never pronounce her last name. So she was a labor organizer before... Cesar Chavez. Yes. Not to take anything away from him. And she was arrested when she was 16 in the year 1933 for picketing a cigar factory because of its unfair labor practices. And she was pointing out labor exploitation basically all over the state. She organized labor unions for garment workers and she lobbied Congress. This is just about the most Texas thing you ever hear. She lobbied Congress for improved labor rights for pecan shellers. Thank you for not saying pecan. I can't remember who says pecan and who says pecan. I always say pecan. Okay. I do have Yankee parents. Well, one. So I'm so not a first generation Texan. I'm not. I was not born in Texas, Missy. What? <laughs> Listen. I don't know if we can keep doing this podcast. Listen, we moved here when I was under one year old. You're still a transplant. But anyway, she lobbied Congress for improved labor rights for pecan shellers. She did all of that at a very young age. I'm sure you know about Susanna Dickinson. I'm actually surprised you have her on this list because she's kind of like Jane Long to me. I don't really think she did a whole lot. She Here's why I think she's important okay. or interesting. She survived the Alamo. Well, Santa Ana purposely did not kill any women, children, or slaves. In that way, he was very progressive. As he was going through Texas slaughtering lots of Anglo-white men, he was freeing slaves everywhere he went. I know a lot of people who I think would be on board with that. (laughs) (laughs) So she survived the Alamo. Santa Ana sent her with a letter that was supposed to be intimidating, and actually it was inspiring to the troops, obviously. Remember the Alamo? Yes. And that's eventually, remember the Alamo was a rallying cry. But most of the firsthand accounts of what happened inside the Alamo? Yes. Came from Susanna Dickinson. Yes. So we know about the battle and the war. but And her husband was killed there. We should say that. So, but she gave us that insider perspective. So she contributed a lot to our knowledge. Did you know that Santa Ana tried to buy her baby from her? I did not. Yeah. Apparently her infant daughter was just incredibly, incredibly cute. And so Santa Ana wanted to buy her. That's a normal impulse when you see right. a cute child. <laughs> I want to own that. Can I buy that child from you? She said no. Well, just so we're clear. That's good. Yeah. I also want to talk about, speaking of history and preserving it, I want to talk about Clara Driscoll and Adina De Zavala. Okay. You know Clara Driscoll. I do. Have you stayed at the Driscoll Hotel? No. Super nice. Where is it? In Austin. So both of them are known for a lot of things, but they preserved Texas history very, very actively. Yes. They're generally cool women. Uh, Clara Driscoll, with the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, fought a long 
very challenging battle to keep the Alamo from being destroyed. Corporation, I mean, it's in the middle of San Antonio, which well, became and, a pretty popular city center. Well, and it's also weird because we don't generally preserve historical sites of losing battles. But remember the Alamo. Right. But we generally like to keep the ones in shape that we won. Right. But it is important because... It became a rallying cry. It's a focal point, yes. the Alamo. I mean, I don't even know where the Battle of San Jacinto was, and that's the one we won. I I can't with you. Where was it? It's outside of Houston. Do we still have... Yes, it's a huge thing. It's a big deal. <laughs> you know, I do this in my classes. I say, how many of you have been to the Alamo? Like, every hand goes up. And I say, how many of you have been to San Jacinto? Like, one person keeps their hand up. So y'all all went where we lost? I would call that person a nerd. <laughs> or they had parents like me and yes. my husband so yes it is where they lost but it is where the inspiration comes from that's more important no winning is more important but at this point in texas history it's important and that's why it's important i guess our parents thought it was important so now we have to think it's important i don't know it's remarkably small <laughs> Adina de zavala created the texas historical landmarks association which of course preserves things that are designated as historical landmarks. And that keeps a lot of buildings and other structures and places intact. And also helps them raise money to keep them standing and updated and in good condition. So both women fighting against corporate interests, sometimes political interests, and lots and lots of money. um, Because, of course, it's usually more profitable to tear down the old thing and and, and build something new. Oh, I'm so pumped. I'm excited. I'm ready. We have the next topic. So before you go into any detail, just why are you so excited to talk about Ann Richards? By the way, the second. (laughs) I'm going to say the first real female governor of Texas, but the second total female governor of Texas. So Ann Richards was funny. She was tough. I remember being a child and seeing her Mm -hmm. as governor and just loving her Mm -hmm. so much. It's one of the great tragedies of my life that I was too young to vote for her. I just I imagine love her. Misty creating some kind of fake ballot box in her home <laughs> so that she could pretend vote. Symbolically cast a ballot for Ann Richards. She was just a great lady. And I love that when I got older and actually knew a little bit more about her, she was a divorced woman mm-hmm. who became the governor of Texas. I don't even know if we could do that now. She also rode motorcycles. Yeah. So I have two questions. Well, I have one question. Okay. I all, I grew up with Ann Richards being basically like a mythological figure. I mean, she was the living governor of Texas, but in our house where like I grew Saint up. Like St. Ann Richards? Basically. Um, if they could have gotten away with it, I'm pretty sure my parents would have built some type of shrine. <laughs> but my parents quote her a lot. They always have. And... I've never looked this up, so I want to ask you, Are did she say these things? Okay. Okay, first, this is a famous quote that I feel like most people have heard. After all, Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did. She just did it backwards and in high heels. She said that at the keynote address to the Democratic National Convention. as part of her pretty well-known speech, I think. Twelve years ago, Barbara Jordan, another Texas woman... Barbara made the keynote address to this convention, and two women in 160 years is about par for the course. But if you give us a chance, we can perform. After all, Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did. She just did it backwards and in high heels. She really said it. No, I'm not going to say she's the first one to say that. I feel like there's been quite a few people that have said that. But yes, it's in her her speech. Okay. The other quote is, I've always said that in politics, your enemies can't hurt you, but your friends will kill you. Yeah. And it's the same thing, right? There's been people that have said something very close to that before her. Okay. But that is something that she was known to have said. Okay. So the legend continues. I remember her being very cool i feel like i can still hear her voice in my mind yes like i just she has a memorable voice to me and um along with a few other people known for being a professional texan meaning when something happened in texas they would call up one of these three people yes and be like 
You're from Texas. What do you think about it? The other thing that being a professional Texan means is that there's a certain way of speaking in Texas Mm -hmm. that we're pretty well known for. Which neither of us do, by the way. Right. Yeah. I think it's... I think it's generational to some extent. I feel like it has died out a little bit. Yeah. But she had some like like folksy down home sayings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't necessarily natural to yeah. her. Yeah. The same way it's not natural to Molly Ivins. Mm-hmm. But she cultivated it because if you're going to be governor of Texas, mm-hmm. you better have a couple of these in your back pocket you can throw out. Right. So Also, you got to drop the G's on your words. We do do that, though. Both of us have a tendency to do that. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I love some quotes I have from her, and I wanted to read you a few of them because, again, this is just a flavor for who Ann Richards was. I always had the feeling I could do anything, and my dad told me I could. I was in college before I found out he might be wrong. It's <laughs> good. Yeah. I like it. Let me tell you, sister, seeing dried eggs on a plate in the morning was a lot dirtier than anything I've had to deal with in politics. <laughs> I just, I love her. She's so funny. So I want to tell you a little bit about her early life before we talk about her in politics, because I think this is important, and she incorporates this quite a bit into her political life. Yeah. So she's born Dorothy Ann Willis in Waco, Texas, 1933. She gets involved in debate and girl state, which is like a mock government, like youth and government kind of thing. I did debate in high school. I'm not surprised by that. Okay. No one is surprised by that. <laughs> That's true. She got married fairly young. I feel like at the time that was the norm, but today we'd say married at 19. Yeah. And so both of them, uh, her husband's name is David Richards, by the way, which is where she gets the Richards from in her name. Mm -hmm. They both go to Baylor. And so they're full-time students. They're extremely Texan. She's born in Waco and they graduated from Baylor? Yes. Okay. Yes. So after they graduated, she is going to teach government in middle schools. Texas government? Well, I'm sure she had to do both. (laughs) Um, But she was also a housewife because he's going to be a lawyer and he becomes a civil rights lawyer and kind of a big deal. So her career took a backseat to his. Mm -hmm. She said that she found being a housewife incredibly, incredibly boring. So she turned to drinking. She would talk about how there were whole days of just having to iron his shirts and drinking helped get her through that. Yeah, I feel like I had to iron about one shirt before I started drinking. So started reaching for a glass. <laughs> I don't. I honestly don't know how long it takes to iron a shirt. I again, I'm not surprised. She always said that she had high expectations of herself. So whatever she was going to do, she was going to be the best. She was going to be the best mother, the best wife, best everything. Right. Mm-hmm. But then when she felt herself not living up to those expectations, she drank. And I think we've talked about this before in the 1950s that those pressures women put on themselves mm-hmm. were so. Mm-hmm all-consuming, mm-hmm. and that nobody is living up to those. So when she drank, she said, I felt cuter, funnier, and smarter. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Some people can have a couple of drinks and stop. With me, there was no stopping. So I find it pretty incredible that she found herself to be inadequate. I know, she right? she felt inadequate. To me, she seems like one of the most powerful beings to have ever lived. But she felt inadequate in the role that was assigned to her in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. Be the supportive wife. And that's really all she was supposed to do. So her and her husband are going to move to Dallas where he works as a civil rights lawyer. They have four children. And then they're going to move in the 1970s back to Austin. Mm -hmm. He had gone to UT for law school, so that's why it's back to Austin. And... In their minds, politics became their couple's activity. (laughs) Like, some people play tennis. We do politics. Nice. So they are going to become friends with a party of well-known liberals in Austin, Mm -hmm. Molly Ivins Mm -hmm. being one of them. Mm -hmm. And then... Don't steal my thunder and start talking about Molly Ivins, by the way. I'm not going to, but I, I love her, too. So at this point, her drinking becomes noticeably worse. And that's partly because the group that she has surrounded herself with also are heavy drinkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Molly Ivins, of course, among them. What did I just tell you about I'm not going to steal your thunder. I'm just saying that they drank together. Yes. So in 1980, her family decides to have an intervention, which I feel like in 1980, interventions were not a well-known thing. I don't know. I feel like that's a much more recent well-known phenomenon. But 
We definitely make a bigger deal about it. Yeah. Yes. So they put her on a flight and they sent her off to what she called drunk school. Molly Ivins also called it drunk school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So St. Mary's Chemical Dependency is where she's going to head off to uh, in Minneapolis. She was really concerned about giving up alcohol because she felt like if she wasn't drinking, she wouldn't be funny. And that was a core part of her personality. Mm -hmm. She enjoyed being the witty center of the party Mm -hmm. kind of person. Mm -hmm. So I know that Molly Ivins has a pretty famous quote about this. Do you want to give it to us so I don't steal your thunder? (laughs) Uh, The irony here, of course, is that Molly Ivins was also... um, identified in her lifetime as an alcoholic but she said about ann richards she was rather a mean drunk given to saying unkind things about people but she was also hilariously funny i think she was the first woman i ever knew who talked about menopause in public part of a very funny routine in questionable taste and when molly ivan says questionable taste it is a very high compliment right right she doesn't mean that as no she does not mean derogatory in any way yeah so she joined Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. Ann Richards did, which works for her. And I should say that this actually put a strain on her and uh, Molly Ivins' relationship because Molly Ivins didn't stop drinking at this point. Right. And Ann had to. Mm-hmm. Um, she really felt like if she didn't, she was not going to make it. Well, and, I mean, honest, honestly, I think that's something they probably teach you in drunk school is that you can't Continue. hang out with the same people. Yeah. Right. Which they did actually still hang out, but just not... In that same mm-hmm. kind of enmeshed way. So despite her getting sober, her marriage doesn't last. They got divorced in 1984. But during the background of this whole time, she had started to enter politics. Her first introduction to politics is working in campaigning. And that's the same thing that happened with Barbara Jordan. Just knocking on doors, getting people registered to vote. Mm-hmm. That's a, a gateway drug <laughs> into <laughs> running for office yourself. <laughs> It's uh, definitely a proving ground, right? So either you get hooked because you um, see the difference you're making and you right. see behind the curtain of how the machine works and you understand the impact that you can have, or you're like, this is pretty boring and takes a lot of time and energy. And I mean, knocking on doors, you you get told no. You don't see a lot of yes. immediate reaction. So mm-hmm. I think it's a good proving ground for whether a person would be good in politics because, as you know, politicians have to do a lot of campaigning and walking around and being told no and knocking on doors and asking for money. So so in 1974, she's going to work for the Texas House campaign for Sarah Weddington, who's a pretty famous Texas woman herself. Mm-hmm. And she eventually becomes Sarah's administrative assistant. Okay. So she got to see government up close firsthand, like how the sausage is made kind of thing. I prefer the saying behind the curtain. Behind the curtain. I don't like to think about how sausage is made, but well, anyway. But that's how... I know. That's I why we say the, that. I understand the expression. So around the same time that she's working as this administrative assistant, her husband's asked to run as county commissioner in Travis County. That's where Austin is. Exactly. And Not he, everyone knows oh, that. Oh, yeah, I guess other people wouldn't know that. <laughs> it's like, duh, Allegra. <laughs> so he said no, but I think my wife might be interested. So he supported her. Yeah. And kind of pushed her into it a little bit. So she's going to focus on getting the vote of the UT students, women, and people of color. Okay. Which, in the 1970s in Texas, has not been done very much. Right. I mean, those are all the groups that are traditionally ignored. So she goes on to become the state treasurer after that in 1982. I honestly didn't know we had a state treasurer. Oh, my God. You need to take Texas government. I'm sure I had to already. But you don't remember any of it. No. So she's the first woman to hold that position in 50 years. Sorry, to hold any statewide position in 50 years. And during her time as treasurer, she saved Texas $1.8 billion. She was just very detailed oriented and very much in tune to the processes of government. She wants to make sure things are running efficiently and timely. Is this true, right, that one of the ways she helped cut that money is that she um, made it easier to cash check for the state of Texas to cash checks? Yes. Yes. She cut the time in half that it took to process a check. Okay. So she saves um, interest, and that's a lot of what the money is that we're saving. So during this time, she has to get good at public speaking. And again, 
by this point she's having to do it sober. <laughs> which again which is for her harder. for hard, yeah. Yeah. And she really carves out that position as being treasurer as in some people's minds a female position. Cause her argument a lot of times is like, well, if a woman can balance a checkbook at home, you can balance the state's budget. Yeah. Which those two things are obviously very different. Yeah. And I don't know that I want to say women are all doing all the balancing of the checkbooks at home. but Right. But she's making that argument to make her place seem less out of place. Yeah. I don't think she believes this, but it's her pitch. Yeah. I mean, and it makes sense because it can convince people who think th- otherwise. Yeah. And she's actually so successful that other female Texas politicians use that exact same position, state treasurer, to launch their political careers. So Kay Bailey Hutchinson is okay. the obvious example there. Maybe obvious is not the right word. Not obvious <laughs> to people. <laughs> Sorry. So she starts to get noticed by the Democratic National Convention. Okay. And National in, Committee. National Committee, I'm sorry. And then she's asked to speak at the convention in 1988. So um, I'm not going to do this whole thing, but I want to say how she opens her speech. Okay. Buenos noches, mi amigos. Mis amigos. Mis amigos. Sorry. <laughs> I love that she opened it that way, though. Yes. Because she's making the point that she is from Texas. Mm-hmm. Texas is different. Mm-hmm. And that she's not going to be giving the same speech that you've heard 30 times at this convention. Mm -hmm. She's also not pretending that she's fluent in Spanish. No. But she's acknowledging that there are other languages than English. And she says, I'm delighted to be here with you this evening because after listening to George Bush, that would be Bush one, all these years, I figured you needed to know what a real Texas accent sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a nice little dig, right? Yeah. But it's not... Super cutting or super mean. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's something that Big George would have laughed at. But not Barbara. So a little bit later on in this speech, again, talking about George Bush, she says, poor George, he can't help it. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. Because he's pretty well known for speaking out of turn. Both of them are. Yeah. Yes. Uh, After this, Barbara Bush starts calling Ann Richards that woman. She wouldn't say her name. So she's well known on the national stage now. Like everybody can remember her in that blue dress with the white poofy hair mm-hmm. giving the speech. Mm-hmm. So in 1990, she's going to run for governor. This is just so remarkable to me. She's running as a divorced mother of four and she's in her 50s. I just. That is pretty impressive. It's amazing. Yeah. I think a lot of people think like, oh, I'm divorced and I'm 50. My life is over. And Ann Richards thinks, you know what? I could be governor. Uh, so the primary stupider people have been governor of texas so (laughs) Uh, yeah so she's gonna run and she has two really really tough races here the primary and the general election are both really 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 tough so in the primary she wait you mean that her male opponents didn't treat her fairly no did they make personal attacks yes i find this to be shocking (laughs) Uh, Jim Maddox runs against her in the primary. He was the state's attorney general. He's called the Freddy Krueger of Texas politics. <laughs> Two things. Yes. One, who comes up with that? I'm like, how do you make that kind of nickname stick? Two, well, I don't think he picked it. <laughs> right, but but someone said it. And how do how does how do people get that to stick? And two. How did we decide Jim Maddox is the Freddy Krueger of Texas politics? Because I feel like a lot of Texas politicians could be the Freddy Krueger. So he was always somebody who was on the verge of everything falling apart. And there are several times where it just looks like his career is over and he somehow comes back from it. I see. Okay. So it's not that he was... He wasn't running around invading people's (laughs) nightmares. No. Well, I mean, I guess some people's. (laughs) So during this primary, he brings up her alcoholism. Classy. Mm-hmm. And he implies that she's using cocaine, which in the 80s was a thing that many people were concerned about. Yeah, but but she wasn't. So she ends up winning against him. So she's the Democratic nominee. And then in the general election, she's going to run against Clayton Williams. He is going to make a lot of news here because he refused to shake her hand because because he just didn't respect her enough to do it 
Why do I know his name? Because in the last couple of weeks of the election, he made a rape joke. He was In his attempt to become governor of the state of Texas? <laughs> he thought he was off the record. But he was at an event with a bunch of newspaper reporters. So obviously, watch what you say. <laughs> I feel like that's a timely reference. Anyway, continue. He said, Texas weather is like rape. You can't change it, so you might as well try to enjoy it. Yeah, that's why I know his name. So when you're trying to win over a lot of, like, Texas evangelicals, making rape jokes is not the way to go. I feel like that's never the way to go. Well, yeah, um, that, I mean, it's just not ever the way to go. If you think to go in that direction, say, that's not the way to go, <laughs> no matter what the circumstances. So she won 50% of the vote and he had 47. Pretty close. Oh, my God. What? Why was it so close? This person made these jokes while attempting to run for governor and he still got 47%. Yes. True. Great. I will say she got 60% of the women's vote. So that swung it for her because women were not going to vote for somebody who was making rape jokes. Well, 40% of women did. 60% is good. (laughs) I have high standards, I guess. Apparently. Um, What's really notable here is that suburban Republican women crossed the aisle and voted for Ann Richards. That's hard to do. Yeah. It's hard to convince people to vote against their own party. Yeah, even now. So she becomes the 45th governor of Texas from 1991 to 1995. Uh, Even though she is, again, technically the second female Mm -hmm. governor, a lot of people consider her the first female governor elected in her own right. Sure. Because she's not running saying two governors for the price of one. She's not even married. No, but she did have a longtime boyfriend, which I find interesting. (laughs) It, It didn't come up in the campaign. I'm surprised that nobody made a big deal about that. All right. So... Here's the thing about her being governor. Mm-hmm. She's governor at a she time. She was a Democrat. That's yes. the first weird thing about her being. Well, that wasn't weird because Texas has always been a one party state. And we were shifting at that point between Republicans and Democrats. Now it's a fully Republican state. But there was a while we were only voting for Democrats. Okay. So what's strange here is that we are at that shift. We are seeing a political realignment in Texas. And we're also seeing population adjustments in Texas. So she's having to balance all of these different political coalitions. And I would say that anybody at this time would have had a hard time with it. But some conservatives are going to say, well, she is trying to change things too fast. Mm -hmm. And progressives are going to say she's slowing things down. I feel like that's a consistent theme. Yes. You can't make everybody happy, right? Right. And she's also a... But, But specifically that, when we talk about social progress... Yes. For, for conservatives to say this progress is moving too fast and for more liberal or more progressive constituents to say this progress isn't moving fast enough. Exactly. So it's hard because she's also a Texas Democrat. Mm-hmm. So on the national level, Democrat- she's a Republican. <laughs> national Democrats might have been talking about gun control and we've got pictures of Ann Richards going hunting. Yeah. Uh, it's just being a Texas Democrat doesn't always make you popular. So she had a really, really tough position. Mm-hmm. Um, Anne, sorry, Molly Ivins is going to say that Anne was handed a stinking mess. Mm-hmm. All right. In 94, she's going to run for re-election against George Bush Jr. Little Bush. Little Bush. Also known as Shrub. But anyway. <laughs> That's what Molly Ivins calls him. So the election comes down to what a lot of political, science say, political scientists say. God, gays, and guns. Mm-hmm. Especially in 1994. Yeah. So the Texas legislature is told by Ann Richards that if they tried to pass a right to carry law, she'd veto it. They did. So she did. So the NRA steps into this election. And it's going to, of course... They always make things better. <laughs> yeah. And throw support to Bush. So she knows before the election day that she's going to lose. She just knows it. So when she loses, it's not necessarily a shock or a surprise, mm-hmm. but it it's still kind of hurt, I imagine. I don't know that you just walk away from that kind of shaking your head going, yep, yeah. I tried. Her accomplishments while governor, she created our state lottery. I don't know how you feel about that, but she did it. She increased environmental protections. She Now, this is something that liberals are going to criticize her for. She increased our state's prison system. So she increased the space we have for prisoners. 
And she also cracked down on the number of prisoners that were able to get paroled. So kind of the opposite of what Ma Ferguson did. <laughs> so that sounds bad on the surface to say that she expanded the state's prison system. And to be honest, even in the 90s, our state prison system was pretty awful. Yes. And it hasn't improved. When you say increasing the space for prisoners, that means that they got more space to live in. Is that right? So, yes, it's an overcrowding issue. And and the other that was my other question is she had to expand the state prison system because previous governors had not. Right. And to the point that we were. And also our population's growing. Right. So the state is growing. Previous governors were not growing the prison system. And it was at a point when she became governor that we had to do something. We were releasing. Yeah. Criminals. Convicted criminals way, so we could get space way yeah. before their parole dates. Yes. To a point where it was starting to become dangerous. Well, and keep in mind in the 1990s, that is a national conversation talking point. Yes. So no matter which way she had gone, there would be criticism. And I don't necessarily think we should put more people in prison and keep people in prison for longer. But she can't get rid of the fact that we have a prison system. Right. And she can't get rid of the fact that people get arrested and go to jail. So what she can do is increase the space and to make sure that the system is adequate to the needs of the, you know. As much as she can do it. Right. I mean, it's not great, and I don't, and especially in the 90s, because we had the war on drugs and all of this other stuff the happening. Idea of the super predator. But, I mean, it's not as bad as it sounds on the surface, exactly. at least. And the other thing she did in this expansion, which is something I really admire, is that she created a rehab program within the prison system. It only had 14,000 spaces, but that's an incredible expansion. Yeah. Because she does realize that some of these people have addiction issues. Yeah. Which if we're not addressing that, then nothing in prison is going to help them. And as far as I know, she's the last governor who did anything compassionate (laughs) for people in prison. She died in 20, sorry, 2006. Mm -hmm. And I really like something she said close to the end of her life. She said, I don't want my tombstone to read. She kept a clean house. I'd like them to remember me by saying she opened government to everyone. She really pushed at the end of her life for us to acknowledge some of our shortcomings and our failures, Mm -hmm. even though she was out of politics. And maybe that's the best time to do it Mm -hmm. when you are personally not going to be attacked. Yeah. And she made it a point after she, I'm sorry, after 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, uh, she moved to New York for a while to show that it was safe and you could live there and to encourage people to not flee cities, you know, because that was a, consideration some people were making like if we get attacked again do Mm -hmm. i really want to be living in a big city right so she's a person i really admire and i think she did a lot for our country she did a lot for our country and and also as a little kid watching her it was so great it was amazing (laughs) it was so good uh and the other thing i don't think that you mentioned is that her daughter yes i did not mention her daughter go ahead her daughter ran Planned Parenthood for yes. a long time. Yes. Until recently. Yeah, very recently. Yeah. Cecile Richards. Yeah, she raised some cool kids too. What's crazy is that I I knew Ann Richards, obviously, and I knew Cecile Richards. And I think you told me like last year that Cecile Richards was Ann Richards' daughter. I had no idea. I just thought they were both yeah, it's a common name. Two independent of each other. Very cool. Mm-hmm powerful women and then you told me I think you told me that I I mean it was the last year that I learned it and so uh yeah she she created a legacy and she inspired a lot of people and uh I think part of it goes back to that representation seeing her speak at the DNC do you remember the Texas monthly cover of her and the the, white leather suit and she's on the motorcycle on the motorcycle yes yes I remember seeing that like as a child and thinking oh she can do that yeah, she's like old lady. If she could do that, I could do it. <laughs> but that's how like a kid's mind works, yeah. right? Yeah. So, do you want to tell us about Molly Ivins? I really do. And I didn't know about Molly Ivins when I was a kid. <gasps> oh no! I she was syndicated in the Fort Worth High or Fort Worth Star Telegram. How did you not know that? I don't know. I, I'm sad for you that you missed out. Uh, but I knew about her. Uh, 
at least when I was in college, maybe when I was in high school. And I don't think that outside of Texas, everybody necessarily knows about her. So Molly Ivins was a writer, an Mm -hmm. editor of newspapers, a journalist, a syndicated columnist. She was born in California, but raised in Texas. Are you going to tell her she's a traitor to the state? I'll give Molly Ivins a pass. Yes. So even most, even Texas purists, most of us anyway, accept her as a Texan. I don't know about the Bush family. I don't think they'll ever accept her, but... She um, went to high school with uh, George. Did you know that? I did not know that. They weren't in the same year. He was a few years behind her. But yeah, they knew each other in high school. With the W? Yes. Hmm. George too. So from a website called Americans Who Tell the Truth, I think this is a succinct way of summarizing her career. Molly Ivins is singular in her profession, not only for her willingness to speak truth to power, but for her use of humor to lampoon the self-seeking, the corrupt, and the incompetent in positions of public trust. Her wit and insight place her squarely in the tradition of America's great political humorists like Mark Twain. Yes, she is Mark Twain. Yes, she is Mark Twain. 100%. (laughs) So she began uh, working for newspapers with the Houston Chronicle. Then she moved kind of around the country. For a while in Minneapolis, she was the city's first female police and crime reporter. But she came back to Texas pretty quickly and worked at the Texas Observer. And she's well known for her lifelong support of the Texas Observer. So she does eventually leave working for that publication and moved to work for the New York Times in 1976. Yeah, but that didn't last long. No. (laughs) Then she moved around some more. And then she came back in 1982 to Texas and worked at the Times-Herald and then for nine years at the Star-Telegram. And when she was at the Star-Telegram writing a column, it was nationally syndicated. So that's when a lot of people became very familiar with her. So she had national experience in different cities. She had crime beat experience. Um, but she was mostly known for her columns. Yes. For her satire and for her opinion pieces, even though she was... Always a good journalist and reporter and investigator. She was mostly known for her columns. She had a great way of just really cutting through Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just telling you the heart of the political matter. Yes. And it was said in plain spoken, a little folksy Mm -hmm. kind of a way, but where anybody with, I would say, at least a sixth grade reading level could understand it. In 2001, she became an independent journalist. She was writing a lot of books, and they were very successful, and she was doing freelance pieces for like national publications and NPR because she was, at that point, a professional Texan. Mm-hmm. So when something happened, and, I mean, George W. Bush was president, so sometimes people wanted opinions about him from Texans. They often called on Molly Ivins, and she... <laughs> She never failed to deliver. I remember one time after Bush had done something that people were like, oh, my gosh, how could the president do that? And they interviewed her and she said, well, maybe next time when I tell you all not to elect a Texan, you'll believe me. (laughs) So the thing about Molly Ivins is nothing was entirely as it seemed. And that's I don't mean to say that she was fake or that she was putting on airs or that she was falsifying her persona in any way. I just mean that she wasn't afraid to be two things at once. Right. She wasn't afraid to be fluent in French, which she was, but also someone who referred to herself as a straight-talking Texas good old gal. So we know what good old boys are. Right. And she referred to herself as a straight-talking, not talking, we don't say G's in Texas, straight-talking Texas good old gal. So she did seem folksy. Yes. And plain spoken, she did this Mark Twain, woman of the people, humorous thing. She went to Smith College. Right. She went to the Sorbonne. Her father was in oil, right? I mean, they had money. Yeah. I mean, she studied at the Sorbonne. She really did speak French, but she also spoke with a Texas accent. She did leave the Texas Observer for the New York Times, which seems like a betrayal of her Texas values. But... She came back pretty quickly, and she did spend most of her life, not most of her life, but for the rest of her life, she spent a lot of time 
fundraising and supporting the Texas Observer because it was an independent publication. Yes. And she believed in its mission. So even once she no longer worked for them, even though she was writing books and appearing on late night talk shows, she was still fundraising for the Texas Observer. And when she died, she left half of her state to the Texas Observer and half of it to the ACLU. And the Texas Observer is still a raging voice for freedom in journalism. They print long-form investigative articles. Yes. So Texas Monthly called her the nation's favorite professional Texan, a political pundit humorist appearing on national newscasts, and a widely read author and two-time Pulitzer nominee. It's very hard to put her in one, in only one box. Right. So she's known for being very funny, but also very smart and very sharp. And she's not just funny to get a laugh. She's very funny to make a point. Exactly. So I want to give you some quotes because I think that will help you really envision what she was like. Misty stole one of them. She promised not to steal my thunder, but you know, whatever. She got it wrong too. She said, next time I tell you someone from Texas should not be president of the United States, please pay attention. She said that in an article called... (laughs) Shrub flubs his dub. I love it. She did call George W. Bush shrub because, of course, he was a small bush. Shrub, small bush. The first rule of holes, when you're in one, stop digging. It's a good one. I didn't know she said that. My parents said that to me all the time when I was a kid. I had no idea they stole it from Molly Ivins. So she often talked about the different kinds of humor because she didn't want to be known for being funny. She wanted to be known for being maybe a satirist, but definitely for being political and being smart and for having something to say. She wanted to be recognized for her message and not just for her delivery. And so she differentiated between the kinds of humor. And she said, there's one kind that makes us chuckle about our foibles and our shared humanity. The other kind holds people up to public contempt and ridicule. That's what I do. So she was very purposeful. She was very purposeful and she wasn't goofy and silly. She wasn't going to go for the easy joke. Right. She said in an an interview with the Texas Monthly that she had consistent nagging fears that her impact as a journalist had been eclipsed by her impact as an entertainer. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. You don't have my favorite quote on here. What is it? Government is about who's getting screwed and who's doing the screwing. Ooh, that is a good one. She said that over and over and over again. That was how she viewed politics. I mean, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's awesome. (laughs) She also said about politics and government, the stakes they play for in politics are paper and money. The chips they play with are your life. That's a really good one, too. Yes. So she was once asked if George Bush was a Texan. I mean, she was actually asked that a lot. Right. (laughs) So she said... I love this quote. Okay. And she said, damn near everyone who died at the Alamo was from out of state. Real Texans, though, do not use the word summer as a verb. Real Texans (laughs) do not wear those navy blue slacks with little green whales all over them. And no real Texan has ever referred to trouble as deep (laughs) doo-doo. She's so great. So no, she said he, he wasn't. She was also someone who struggled with alcoholism. She's also someone who, in her life, went to drunk school. But she didn't ever stay sober, right? So she was sober, or she attended AA for the last year and a half of her life. She did struggle with alcoholism. She did try several times in her life, kind of unsuccessfully, to combat it. Right. She also smoked a lot of Marlboros. She was, known, oh, that's right. she was known for smoking cigarettes pretty much everywhere she went. In 2007, she died in her home in Austin in hospice care. She was 62. After she died, George W. Bush, who was a very frequent recipient yes. of her very sharp-tongued insults, said, and this is what he said in a statement, I respected her convictions, her passionate belief in the power of words. She fought her illness with that same passion. Her quick wit and commitment will be missed. Can I tell you my favorite Molly Ivan story? Yes. 
there was going to be a Ku Klux Klan march in Austin. And that always causes a lot of issues, right? Because then there's counter-protests. And yeah, obviously. So Molly Ivins and a couple of her friends organized the counter-protest. Do you know the story? Mm-mm. So when the Klan showed up to do their march, the counter-protests were lined on the sides of the street. And as the Klan walks by, they all turned around and mooned the Klan. <laughs> <laughs> there's videos on YouTube. You can find it. It's really great. <laughs> Just to let the Klan know what they thought of them. <laughs> So in 2012, uh, Kathleen Turner portrayed Molly Ivins in a one-woman show called Red Hot Patriot, the kick-ass wit of Molly Ivins. And that play was written by two sisters, Margaret and Allison Engel, and that play was in Washington, D.C. So people went to see that play, Mm -hmm. and those people said, hey, I can't believe there's not a movie about her. Because she's awesome. I mean, th- that's literally what happened. Someone attended the play. They had never heard of her before. They called someone else and said, you've got to go see it. It closes tomorrow. Um, and then that person went to see it. And that person was Janice Angle, not related to the playwrights, even though they have the same last name. That's interesting. And Janice Angle said, what other movies have there been about her? There haven't been any. So they she spent six years producing and creating a documentary about Molly Ivins called Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins, which I think came out last year, last year, like August of last year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you definitely didn't see it like at the Cinemark necessarily, uh, but it was at a lot of film festivals yes. and it was pretty well received. And I think what it's done is it's brought a lot of people to Molly Ivins who nece- who hadn't necessarily heard of her before. Or yeah, I would say anybody younger than us probably could have missed her. Yes, and anybody not in Texas, maybe. Well, yeah, for sure. Her column was syndicated, and she did. Well, she was a political commentary on the national stage, but and I think one of her books might have been a bestseller, if not more than one. At least one, yes. I think Bushwhacked was a good bestseller. Can there was a book called something like Can Molly Ivins really say that? Or, Molly Ivins can't say that, can she? Yeah, I think that was the first like big successful book. Uh, let's talk about the title of the book here. Molly Ivins can't say that, can she? What is that referring to? Oh, when I first started writing my political column, I felt impelled to describe the performance of a local congressman by saying, "If his IQ slips any lower, we'll have to water him twice a day." Right. <laughs> It upset a lot of his supporters, and uh, they canceled their subscriptions and threatened to start boycotts. And so my paper took out billboards all around Dallas, Texas that said, Molly Ivins can't say that, can she? But um, absolutely, and I think that you can find her documentary pretty easily now and and watch the film about her. So, Lyra, what's next in your lady life? So I actually haven't seen this documentary about Molly Ivins, and I'm telling everyone else to go watch it. (laughs) You should go watch it yourself. I do feel a little bit like a jerk for doing that, so I'm going to go watch it myself. Good call. What about you? What's next in your lady life, Missy? Next uh, Next in my lady life is I am the contact advisor now for Phi Theta Kappa at our campus, and we are about to go to the Texas Regionals. So we got to get... Is that like in Glee when they go to Regionals? Uh, no, it's not. No, that's it's a, not. That's a choir contest. <laughs> no, no, we are not. No, no, no. I thought you would just uh, get the joke and laugh, but then you're like, I don't know. Is it like Glee? It is a regional event, but no, yeah, it's no, not. It's like a conference. It's for like a conference. Yes, in your honor society, it yes. is not a choir competition. Okay. I would not be in charge of that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and my favorite Texas expression or saying is, there's nothing in the middle of the road except yellow lines and dead armadillos. <laughs> That's better than mine. I'm Allegra, and my, my favorite Texas expression is just howdy, y'all. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, which you would like us to discuss in the future, or how great you think we are. Which is very great, but not as great as Ann Richards or Molly Ivins. Not to even close. To mm-hmm. connect with us. You can follow us on Twitter at Professors, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address at Professors at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, interviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, the stars at night. Are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas.